the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Thomas Modley, good morning, Secretary Modley. Welcome back. Good to have you. Good morning, Hugh. How are you? Uh, good. I'm, I'm not sure I'm comfortable talking about a strategic asset, but it's in the headlines. So some questions about the Teddy Roosevelt. And if it's an inappropriate question, just say so. Okay. Uh, should we be discussing carriers and at sea and their readiness at all? Um, I would prefer that we don't do that in public forums, clearly. Um, uh, that's part of the rationale behind why uh, I took the action that I did yesterday. Uh, when you know, It's been a long time since I was in the Navy on active duty, but one of the first things I learned as a midshipman was this phrase that I think became popular in World War II, which is loose lips sink ships. And, you know, Maybe we need to update that now for the digital era, but I think that it, uh, I think the message is pretty clear. Um, we have to be careful with the information we share and how we share it. Um, it's certainly not a, uh, a reason for us not to share information through proper chains of command and to be transparent about challenges that we're facing, um, particularly in, in crises. Um, but that's not what happened in this instance, and um, that's the reason why uh, I took the actions that I did yesterday. Now, Secretary Mudley, since the Teddy Roosevelt is on the front page of every newspaper, I'm going to break my rule and ask you a few questions. First, it's birthed in Guam. Could it surge to sea if needed? Yes. Are any of the sailors on the TR in bad shape? The press coverage and the letter giving rise to the action yesterday seem to suggest there might be some sailors in bad shape. Well, uh, let me give you the latest numbers that I have, and um, as I've I've been very transparent about this since this first broke last week. I've had at least three press conferences discussing these. So um, as of right now, we have uh, about 95 people, about 140 people that have tested uh, positive. Ninety-five of those are symptomatic, and those symptoms are largely mild to moderate flu-like symptoms. Uh, Forty-two of those are asymptomatic. Not one person has been hospitalized, not one person in ICU, and not one person on a ventilator. So uh, you referred to it, you relieved the CO of the TR yesterday. Why did you do that? What were your reasons uh, for doing so? Well, my reasons I, I laid out pretty clearly in uh, in my press conference yesterday and in the statement. And uh, But it basically, basically came down to the point that I just made earlier, which is uh, I had just lost confidence in this particular commanding officer's ability to manage through this crisis based on the actions he displayed uh, last week. And um, it, without going into too many details on it, because I had detailed that in my, my statement yesterday, I just lost confidence in his ability. I think his actions uh, put the crew at risk, uh, greater risk. I think he put uh, the spotlight on the Navy in a negative light when all the things he was asking for were surging for him. And also I think sort of most uh, disappointingly to me is that I had set up a direct line to him that if he felt that anything way, way before his letter was written, that uh, that if he felt that anything wasn't going well and he needed help, that he could reach out to me directly, and he did not do that. Um, and um, 
So uh, for, for that reason, I just think maybe in the midst of the crisis, you know, sometimes this happens, people people uh, get overwhelmed, and I just can't have a commanding officer who gets overwhelmed and uses that type of judgment um, in the middle of a crisis. And this is not an indictment of his entire career. He's had an absolutely incredible career. I'm I'm envious of it. Uh, He's done some amazing things. But at this particular time, I needed a CEO there that could help manage us through this crisis. And um, I just didn't think, uh, based on those actions, uh, that I could do that. Now, there, there's a lot of conversation in the media about chain of command, uh, Secretary Modley, and for the Steelers fans out there, they think that's the 10-yard line marker. What is the chain of command, and what happened to it here? Well, every commanding officer has a chain of command uh, that proceeds above him. This particular commanding officer's chain of command, the first step on that was the carrier strike group commander, who was a rear admiral, who was actually embarked on the ship with him and probably is birthed, you know, 10 or 20 feet down the passageway from him. Um, he, instead of going to that particular uh, admiral's cabin and sitting down and talking with him about his concerns and coming up with a strategy with him on how to address them, uh, he decided to send an email and copy that email to a large list of other people who were not in the chain of command um, and sent it up also through the chain of command, skipping people in the chain of command. Uh, and that, to me, just represented uh, just extremely poor judgment, because once you do that in this digital era, you know that there is no way that you can control where that information is going to go. And so what happened very, very predictably and should have been predictable to him is that the media picked up on it. And, of course, they published it, um, which, you know, is their responsibility to do, I assume. Um, and then we're scrambling around to try and understand whether or not what he's saying in the statement is true, whether or not the Navy is actually doing what it's supposed to be doing, when he knew full well at the time that everything he had been asking for was flowing into theater as fast as possible. Uh, and it just undermined our efforts. And I think also, unfortunately, put a lot of families, uh, created a lot of uh, distress for the families, he did not even talk to his command master chief about this, so the enlisted people on the ship were not aware of what his feelings were on the state of the ship, uh, and it just was extremely bad judgment. Um, and I'm not saying that uh, in the next instance where he has some type of a uh, high risk or crisis that he's having to deal with that he would react as poorly as he did there, but I couldn't afford to take that risk at this particular time, and, uh, and so that's why he's being reassigned. Secretary Modley, uh, removing a commander in the field is difficult. General Mattis relieved a colonel on the march to Baghdad on April 4th, 2003, and he wrote about how hard that was. How difficult a decision was this for you? Hugh, this is, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do, um, particularly in, in this job, because I know that uh, in my heart and in, uh, in the heart and mind of this particular officer, every single thing that he was doing was with the best interests uh, of the, the crew in mind for their lives and their safety. I know that he loves this crew. I know that the crew loves and respects him. But that that's not an excuse uh, for exercising the judgment that he, that he did. So um, it was very, very difficult for me. Uh, I, I had wished that I would never have to make a decision like this. But my responsibilities extend beyond just uh, that individual officer, and they go to the safety of that crew, our national security objectives, all the other ships that are out there in the Pacific that uh, are now uh, perhaps on a higher standard of alert because our adversaries in the region think that, that one of our warships might be crippled, which it's not. Um, but there, that sowed seeds of doubt. Um, and as I said, loose lips sink ships. And uh, that's what happens. And uh, this officer should have known better. Have you named a new commanding officer? 
Uh, yes, we have, um, and uh, he's he is tracking to get there. Currently, the uh, the XO is uh, uh, he's taking command of the ship for now. Uh, the strike group commander is still there, and uh, the new the new um, CEO is on his way and should be there soon. And Can actually, you tell us his or her name? Yes, his name is uh, Rear Admiral Carlos Sardiello. He is a Rear Admiral Select. Uh, he actually was the prior commanding officer of the TR, which is really the best possible person we could have found. Um, and I appreciate him stepping into the line here. But it's important that he understands that crew. Many of the crew were there when he was there before. He understands that power plant. He understands the ship, how it operates. He knows every nook and cranny on that ship. And he obviously, having served as a CEO, also has a great love for it and the crew. And that's what we need there right now. Now, based on Robert Kaplan's very fine book, Angel's Cauldron, and my own visit there last year, I thought it was very important for the TR to put in Da Nang. Into, into Nang. Uh, I've read reports the Navy does not believe the virus originated there. What is your assessment of whether or not it ought to have gone in, who made the decision to go in, and whether or not it impacted the crew's uh, vulnerability to the virus? Well, when these ships get chopped to the, uh, the combatant command, so it was it was assigned to Indo-PACOM, and Admiral Davidson is the commanding uh, uh, admiral for the for the Indo-PACOM region. Uh, it's his call as to how that ship will be used. Uh, it's our job to make that sure that that ship is ready so he can use it as he needs to use it. Uh, but once it goes under his operational command, it's, it's his responsibility to, to make sure that, you know, to, to assign that ship to where it goes. Um, it's a very important strategic signal, obviously, that that ship uh, went into Da Nang. It's the second one we sent uh, to Vietnam since the Vietnam War, all within the last couple of years. And um, it, I, you know, it's very encouraging to know that the Vietnamese government wants us to come there and, and, and show, demonstrate some presence there. When the ship was sent there, uh, the risk assessment was pretty low. There was only, I believe, 16 to 20 cases in all of Vietnam, confirmed cases, and they were all in the Hanoi area, not uh, down near Da Nang. But that being said, we have not done the forensics and probably will never be able to do the forensics on who is case zero on the ship. I mean, we have people, 5,000 people on that ship, you know, 4,800. They're flying in and out from all over the place. You know, this could have been contracted by a crew member who was in San Diego on leave before he arrived on the ship. We just don't know. At this stage, I don't, uh, I'm not sure I really care or that that matters. It's all about getting the the crew uh, healthy getting them off the ship as expeditiously as possible and maintaining a, a watch a watch bill there uh, that can deploy the ship if it needs to deploy. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. And um, there have been some amazing strides in the last week. You know, the ship pulled in last week. They re- re- really didn't have a lot of places to put these guys uh, and, and women, but uh, – Within a week, we've, we're up to about 3,700 different places that we're rolling people off to where they can stay uh, and be in quarantine uh, in, in, in some level of comfort um, while we go through the testing protocols um, and uh, ensure that we have a crew on the ship that can operate all the things that need to be operated and safeguarded. Technical question, uh, Secretary Modley. If the pilots who are the heart and soul of the carrier lose their qualifications to land in daytime or nighttime, will they regain them in Guam, and, and will the ship's tour be extended once they regain their quals if, in fact, they lose them? Oh, they're, they, they'll hold on to their quals for quite a while. It's well, I think it's something I asked that question the other day. It's, you know, it's well over 30 days before they would lose their quals. Um, and uh, so I think we're going to be through this uh, by then in terms of being able to sustain that. But they're working all kinds of contingencies to figure out, okay, if this thing extends longer than that, um, what do we do? And, you know, obviously we're thinking through that, not just there, but across the whole fleet.
I'm curious, once this has passed over the ship, it becomes somewhat immune to the virus and therefore an even more valuable strategic asset. Do you expect the TR's tour to be extended? I, I, I don't know that, and I really probably wouldn't um, be able to comment on that um, publicly. So uh, okay, is I the, can't give you a better answer on that one. How is the Navy monitoring COVID across the fleet? Well, we're we're monitoring it very very actively, and um, we, we're, I'm getting updates every day. I've got uh, uh, not just within the Navy, but across the DoD, we have conference calls at least two or three times a day talking about what's happening across the DoD, the actions that we're taking. As you know, last week we delivered the mercy and the comfort to New York City and to Los Angeles. We're looking at that. We're evaluating that. I went out and visited the mercy on on uh, Tuesday to see how they were doing. Um, they're, you know, they're doing magnificently well. Uh, we're looking at uh, possibilities to to extend to expand the amount of coverage we do there in terms of helping out with some of the patients that are there. Perhaps looking at taking patients who are recuperating from uh, the virus and bringing them on board just to to, to be a bigger relief valve for the, the local hospitals and local authorities there. But uh, the Navy is really, I mean, it's uh, its astounding. You know, the Navy, uh, I tell these people all the time, uh, wherever, whoever will listen to me, that we had over 200 volunteers that wanted to go on those ships to go right into the heart of this virus uh, to serve their country. I'm sure you do. Uh, but so. Mr. Secretary, you've got Carriers and Ohio-class submarines are strategic assets of the United States. I expect the curtain to come down over them now in a way that uh, people just have forgotten you need to protect strategic assets. How are the families going to hear what's going on? Because families, 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 I know you care about them. How are they going to get information? Well, we, you know, we've got a pretty active ombudsman network that keeps the families informed, and we also work with, through our, our command master chief petty officers to keep them informed as well. And, you know, it's, we're moving into some uncharted territory here with respect to this, and, you know, we have to be careful, and um, that's sort of at the heart of, you know, the, the, the challenge we had with the TR. I mean, this is not normal circumstances. You know, we may not be at war in a traditional sense, but we are um, in a major crisis, both globally um, with this pandemic, but also with respect to authoritarian regimes who want to take us down, and they're actively trying to do that, and so we have to be on guard and on alert. 30 seconds, Mr. Secretary. All eyes are on the PRC. I assume the fleet is as well on a heightened state of alert after the helicopter Japanese destroyer incident? Uh, we're always on a very high alert, uh, particularly in that part of the world, with, res with respect to what uh, the PRC is doing and uh, the things that they have been doing over the last uh, many years. So obviously it's a big concern for us, and that sort of heightens, the, heightens sort of the sensitivity that we all had to the situation on the TR. Acting Secretary Thomas Modley, thank you. Keep coming back. I appreciate your candor and your transparency, your availability as well at a very difficult time. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Hugh. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is David Davenport of the Hoover Institution for townhall.com. Some say authoritarian governments are better able to manage a crisis like coronavirus than a democracy. But I say not so fast. The founders wisely provided for emergency powers when needed, and both the president and governors have used these. We have institutions like the Federal Reserve able to take quick action when needed. 
But beyond that, our democracy depends on the virtue of the people. Benjamin Franklin stated what the founders understood when he said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. The jury is still out on whether people get this. We still have far too many people, especially young people, out and about, ignoring social distancing. People are still hoarding sanitizer, masks, and toilet paper. Yes, we need everything medical science can bring to the table, but more than that, we need the American people to step up their sense of civic virtue. I'm David Davenport. Considering a career in politics? Consider Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.